Well, let me uh, welcome you all to this part of Faith Academy. Uh, this is the second study in a series of six on the subject of the Apostles' Creed. And tonight we're going to consider uh, the section, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. I need you to turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, if you'd do that for us. Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 15 through to 23. Colossians chapter 1. And before we read, um, let me give you a little background um, to the origins of the Apostles' Creed. And I found a very helpful article by Brand Hansen. He's the Assistant Professor of History and Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis in Minnesota, uh, the seminary that was set up by John Piper. <coughs> he writes, it's true to say that all the historical evangelistic confessions, such as the Augsburg, the Helvetic, the Belgic and Westminster confessions, have their roots in the Apostles' Creed. It's an important statement of the central truths of our faith. The precise origin of the Apostles' Creed is shrouded in mystery. Uh, there's no historical or textual evidence that it is the direct product of the apostles, but of course it does have roots in the apostles' teaching. And just like all the creeds during the early church fathers' era, the apostles' creed was composed as a direct response to heresy. It was uh, a response or a defense of the gospel, a defense of the Christian faith. And the immediate heresy that the creed responded to was Gnosticism. Gnosticism denied, among other truths, the divine creation, uh, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. It denied the deity of Christ. It denied salvation by faith in Christ alone. And all these doctrines are expressly affirmed in the creed. An early version of what later became the Apostles' Creed was called the Old Roman Creed, and it was in use as early as the second century. It seems to have been used, first of all, as a confession of one's baptism, and it also appears in some martyrdom accounts. It's thought by some that by about the fifth century, the Apostles' Creed had developed into the form as we have it this evening. The Creed expresses essential biblical doctrine that has been articulated, defended, embraced for nearly 2,000 years of church history. It represents a set of uncompromisable core beliefs for believers. It functions just like a filter for orthodoxy. It indicates what is and what is not Christian. And all evangelical denominations since the Protestant Reformation have affirmed the Apostles' Creed without reservation. In his Institutes of Christian Religion, John Calvin said this about the Apostles' Creed. It furnishes us with a full and everyday complete summary of faith containing nothing but what has been derived from the infallible word of God. And William Perkins, an English Puritan, when he was delivering an exposition of the Apostles' Creed, he asserted that the Creed was the very pith and substance of Christian religion taught by the Apostles 
embraced by the ancient fathers and sealed by the blood of martyrs. Now, if you want to know more about the history of the Apostles' Creed, believe me, there are lots of useful articles online. So with that short background to the Creed, let's then pick up our Bibles and turn to Colossians uh, chapter 1. Part of the study tonight will involve the phrase, Jesus Christ, God's only Son. And that's why we're reading Colossians chapter 1 from verse 15. This is God's word. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, what we do not know, teach us. What we are not, Please make us use tonight's study to remind us of the glorious truths contained in this section of the Creed and be pleased to apply these truths to our everyday living for you. This is our prayer and we pray it in Jesus our Lord's name. Amen. Tonight, with uh, millions of churchgoers around the world, we will recite the Apostles' Creed. But do we actually believe what we profess? And we'll come back to that question at the very end. If you remember, Neil preached a few weeks ago on the first section of the Creed, which says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And what I do not want is for our study tonight to be nothing more than a lecture with me just giving you head knowledge. But rather it's my prayer that with the help of the Holy Spirit our study will feed our minds, yes, but will also touch our hearts and will lead to a response of worship and a response of Christ-like living. Previously, Neil reminded us of the Creed's Trinitarian structure, 
how the creed's three sections are organised around each member of the Trinity. God the Father, which Neil dealt with. And I begin the section on God the Son tonight. And then later on, we'll be looking at God the Holy Spirit. But tonight we begin the largest section of the creed, which is all about the second person of the Trinity. It's all about the Son of God, the Saviour. The one who Colossians chapter 1 reminds us is the ultimate revelation of God. And in this middle section tonight and over the next few studies, we're going to be thinking about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. For simplicity, we're going to comment on each phrase, sometimes a word, just to help us understand what is meant. And then after stating the meaning, try and make some applications. And so our section for study tonight begins with, I believe in Jesus. The name Jesus is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew name Joshua, and it means Jehovah is salvation, or Jehovah will save, or quite simply, Savior. Do you remember the words of the angel who appeared to Joseph in a dream? Matthew chapter 1. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then when we turn to Acts chapter 4, we find Peter and John standing before the Jewish council, and they are preaching these words. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So we're not to seek salvation in any other name than in the name of Jesus. Our own merits cannot fit in with this confession of reliance upon Jesus for salvation. We're to fully rest in Jesus because in him alone there is total and complete salvation. Jesus, our Savior, liberates sinners from the natural condition of being mastered by the world and the flesh and the devil. And our salvation is accomplished through what Jesus did in history, by what he continues to do in believers by the Holy Spirit. So if you're a child of God here this evening, the basis of your salvation is Jesus' death on the cross and the righteousness he achieves for you in his act of obedience, even to the death on a cross. I love the Heidelberg Catechism, how it addresses the person of Jesus. Question 29 asks this, Why is the Son of God called Jesus, meaning Savior? And the answer given is, because he saves us from our sins. Salvation cannot be found in anyone else. It is futile to look for salvation elsewhere. I believe in Jesus, the Savior. And as we move on to the next word, we see that each part of our Savior's name is significant. I believe in Jesus Christ. And the name Christ is the Greek rendering of a Hebrew word for Messiah, or the Anointed One. The name Christ is informing us 
that the Lord Jesus is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. These were the, if you remember, the Old Testament offices. They all required the anointing to occupy those offices. And therefore a man was anointed to serve in the office of prophet, priest, or king in the Old Testament. This act of anointing was to be symbolic of God supplying him, of God enduing him with skills and with wisdom and with gifts to carry out his office to the glory of God and for the good of the people. And as time went on, as the weaknesses of the prophets and the priests and the kings of old showed a great gap between the symbol and the reality, there was a longing among the people, along with the prophecies from God, that one day a Messiah would come upon whom the true and the full anointing would fall. And this Messiah would fulfill all the offices and would discharge them all perfectly to the glory of God and the good of the people. This was the great messianic hope of the Old Testament. And this was the hope that Jesus fulfilled. And that's why we call Jesus the Christ or Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, which all mean the Messiah, the anointed one. Our shorter catechism explains this very clearly. What offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? Christ as our Redeemer executes the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. How does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. How does Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. So we need to understand that each of the three Old Testament offices, prophet, priest, and king, they find their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. As a prophet, he shows us the way of salvation. He furnishes our understanding with the knowledge of spiritual things. As a priest, he removes the guilt of our sins. He purchases salvation for us. The letter of Hebrews informs us that Christ is sympathetic of our weaknesses as our high priest. This means we know we've got a shoulder to cry on when we struggle. This means we've got a powerful priest who prays for us when we're tempted. And as a king, he perfects his strength in our weakness and he bends our will into obedience to himself. So moving on, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, God's only son. And this is a phrase that the early church 
took the most time with. The Apostle John put it this way. He said in the opening words of his Gospel, chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's clear that when John speaks of the Word, he's speaking about the Son. In John's mind, those two terms, Word and Son, are interchangeable. They explain each other. When you jump down to verse 14 of chapter 1, John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word of John chapter 1 verse 1 is the Son of chapter 1 verse 14. And putting that all together, we see that the Son was with God and the Son was with God. So there is unity and distinction. And the early church, they worked so very hard to try and understand that and to preserve that doctrine precisely. And so in that phrase, his only son, we're talking here about the eternal relationship between the son and the father. The son of God has always been the Son of God. The Father has always been the Father. For fathers present here tonight, there was a point in time when you became a father. Before that, you were not a father. But that's not the case with God. God has always been Father. The Son of God has always been the Son of God. There was no point in time when the Son came into existence. The Son was always, has always been the Son of His Father. There was a time when there was no universe, no angels, no created beings, but there was never a time when God the Son did not exist. As John reminds us, in the beginning was the Word. A unique relationship exists between the Father and the Son. And Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Now, why is this important? Why does this matter? Well, for this reason. In the early church, there were people who taught that the Son was a creature. That the Son was a created being. And of course, Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses still teach that. The false teachers of the early church period claimed that there was a point before creation when the Father had existed all alone, when the Father had existed by himself, and then he created the Son, and then he created the Spirit, and then they created the world. And so the early church fathers, such as Athanasius, he saw that this was heresy, nothing less than heresy. Because if the Son of God is not eternal, then the Son of God is not really God. And if the Son of God is not really God, then he has not reconciled us to God. Think about it for a minute. If the Son is not God, then that means that he is only an angel. He's only a creature. 
And that would mean that his death would only reconcile us to the angels, the creatures. And if we're only reconciled to creatures, then we're not reconciled to God. And the Bible says that we are reconciled to God. If Jesus is only an angel, then he's no more powerful than Satan. In fact, some of these heretics even taught that Jesus and Satan were brothers. But if Jesus is going to defeat the power of sin and death and the devil, then he must have sufficient righteousness and authority to do so. He must be God himself. So whenever we recite that phrase, his only son, we're affirming that Jesus Christ is God's son, that he's the only begotten of the Father, that he is divine, fully divine. You see, the divinity of Jesus was being denied. They talked about Jesus as being just a mere man. They were setting to the side the clear teaching of the word of God because the scriptures, in the scriptures, there is abundant evidence for the divinity of Jesus. For example, scripture ascribes to Jesus divine attributes. We've been talking about his eternal existence. But there's also his omnipresence, his ability to be present in all places at all times. Matthew 18, verse 20. For where two or three are come together in my name, there am I in the midst. So Jesus is with believers all over the world at the same time. And then there's his omniscience, his possession of complete knowledge. The apostle Paul, sorry, John said of Jesus, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. And then there was his omnipotence, his unlimited power and authority. Paul wrote to the Philippians and said, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. His omnipresence, his omniscience, his omnipotence all point to his divinity. And I could give many more examples of Jesus Christ, son of God's divinity. Scripture ascribes creation to Jesus. Scripture ascribes providence to Jesus. John 3.35 says, The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Scripture ascribes forgiveness to Jesus. Mark chapter 2 verse 5, Jesus had just healed the paralytic and said to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. And Scripture ascribes judgment to Jesus. Acts 10 verse 42 Peter is preaching to Cornelius and he says, Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. So you see, in all of these ways and many more, we can see how clearly scripture ascribes divinity to Jesus. Jesus was 
and remains God's only son, as truly and fully God as his father is. Jesus Christ, son of God, is the member of the Trinity who makes God visible to us. And when we see the son, we see God. So to call Jesus Christ the son of God is to say that he perfectly represents the character and the nature of God. Now, the scripture teaches that you and I become sons and daughters of God through adoption. Whenever we recognize that God is righteous and God is holy and that we are unrighteous and we are unholy and that we stand under God's righteous condemnation and judgment, we cry out to him for cleansing. We cry out to him for forgiveness. And in his grace and in his mercy, he hears us, he forgives us, he justifies us, he declares us righteous, and he adopts us into his family. And you and I become the sons and daughters of God. While the Son, the Lord Jesus, has always been the Son from eternity. We become sons and daughters of God by adoption through grace. And all of this is because of what Jesus Christ, God's only Son, has done on our behalf. Only the infinitely precious blood of the Son of God can save us. So let's embrace that truth tonight. And let's rejoice in that truth tonight. You see, to be a Christian is to believe that Jesus Christ is perfect in deity and perfect in humanity. And we'll think about his humanity in a moment or two. After we comment on this next phrase, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And this is what every child of God must confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How is Jesus our Lord? Well, there are a number of reasons why Jesus Christ is Lord. Let me just mention two. First of all, Jesus is our Lord because he is God, the second person of the Trinity. And we are subject to the Lordship of Christ simply because he is God, the creator of all. And secondly, Jesus is our Lord because he is mediator. God the Father appointed Christ the mediator between God and man. And in this sense, Christ is Lord over the elect. He is Lord over those chosen by the Father before the creation of the world. Authority over the elect was given to Jesus in the eternal decree of the Father. He gave them to the Son so that they might be saved. And Christ's authority, his lordship over the elect, was sealed in the sending of the Holy Spirit to apply salvation and its benefits to the elect. That means that whenever we confess Jesus as our Lord, we're making a statement. We're saying that he has ownership of us, which means that he cares for us, which means that we can look to him for protection and deliverance. And we're also saying that we owe him obedience. 
We've been bought with a price, his precious blood. And therefore, we've got to serve him. We've got to obey him in everything that he asks of us. Now, there are those who wrongly believe that salvation is a two-step process. That first you accept Christ as Saviour, And then subsequently, down the line, you make him Lord of your life. And that is wrong. That is completely wrong. We need to note that we do not make Christ Lord. He is Lord. Anyone who supposedly receives Jesus as Savior but doesn't receive him as Lord is in reality guilty of rejecting him. Because the Lord Jesus cannot be split. You can't receive Christ as Savior and not as Lord. And we need to know how we as believers acknowledge Christ's Lordship in our lives. First, whenever a person becomes a Christian, he is simply affirming that Jesus Christ is Lord over his life. And secondly, we acknowledge Christ's Lordship when we submit to his revealed will, when we submit to the word of God. Do you remember what Jesus said about those who make a false profession? Luke chapter 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Christ's lordship is acknowledged by those who do what Christ says. We're to seek to obey every single one of his commands. Which means that when you hear or when you read a command of Christ, understand that it's not optional for you if you're a believer. And one more thing. We acknowledge Christ's lordship over us when we submit to his particular will for us. It might include pain. It might include suffering or trial or temptation or tribulation or whatever. But here's the point. If Christ is Lord, and he is, and if we're his peculiar property, and we are, then who can hinder Christ from doing what he wills with his own? We've been studying through Romans. Romans chapter 9, you remember, Paul writes, But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? We need to learn to say to the Lord, Yet not as I will, but as you will. And the good question to ask at this point would be, is he your Lord? For all who would say the creed, I think this question is inescapable. How can you say our Lord in the creed until you first say my Lord in your heart? I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, we know only too well that our society is opposed to any notion that God has interfered, that God has acted personally in history. And one of the ways in which this is seen is in the denial of the miraculous conception and birth of the Lord Jesus. 
In the late 19th century, this denial was widely taught by liberal theologians in Europe because of an erosion of confidence in the word of God. And yet the Bible says quite clearly that Jesus was conceived in the womb of his mother Mary by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit and without a human father. That's the teaching of the word of God. The birth of Jesus was the result of no normal conception. Yet, the second person of the Trinity became man. Not merely in appearance, but in reality. Right from the beginning, the early church battled with the heresy of docetism, which was the view that the body of Christ wasn't real. It only seemed to be real. And the Apostle John actually argues against docetism in 1 John 4 verse 2. He says, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Jesus had all the essential properties of a real man. And it's vital that we understand this, that Jesus Christ is fully God and also fully man. We need to understand that Jesus Christ has two distinct natures, one human, one divine, in one person. The eternal Son of God, in perfect relationship with the Father and the Son, took to himself a true human nature. And you know what that means? It means that Jesus our Lord did not cease to be God when he came to earth. He didn't meld his divinity into humanity. He did not just add a human being to himself to make himself two people. We're speaking of the oneness of his person but the two-ness of his natures. This keeps them distinct but not separated. And it is a mystery. This is a wonder of wonders that God has become a man. This is what God did to save you and me. The conception of Jesus Christ is quite simply a miracle. The Holy Spirit is the cause of the miraculous conception of Christ. And since the miraculous is beyond human comprehension, we accept the truth of such an event on the basis of the word of God. But Jesus' incarnation was a necessity for a number of reasons. First, to keep Jesus unspoiled from the sinful nature of his parents. The incarnation indicates Jesus' freedom from sin. He did not inherit original sin. His manhood was untinted. His acts, his attitudes, his motives, his desires were completely faultless. And the New Testament emphasizes his sinlessness. And secondly, Jesus' incarnation was a necessity so that he might become our mediator. Listen to Paul in 1 Timothy 2. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And in answer to the question, why was it requisite that the mediator should be a man, the Westminster Larger Catechism answers this way. 
It was requisite that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, have a fellow feeling of our infirmities, that we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness onto the throne of grace. It was requisite that Jesus becomes a man so that he could be our redeemer. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, when he finished, who was born of the Virgin Mary. And there have been many errors that have arisen over the years about the virgin birth, which led to this phrase being included in the creed. What's at stake in each of these heresies is the truthfulness, the trustworthiness of the word of God. And that is very significant when we're thinking about the virgin birth, when we're thinking about the incarnation of Christ. One of the church fathers, Thomas Aquinas, begins his comments on this phrase of the creed. He says this, It's necessary for a Christian not only to believe in the Son of God, but also one must believe in his incarnation. The Heidelberg Catechism says that the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. Thus he is also the true seed of David, and like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. The virgin birth speaks of the grace of God. This is something that God did entirely by his sovereign power. He initiated it and accomplished it. It was a sign that the power to save was something God alone provides. And Mary was that amazing vessel. Mary was that willing vessel. Listen to her. Luke chapter 1. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. My friends, she is truly worthy of the name, the Blessed Virgin Mary, because she bore the Son of God. But understand that the phrase, born of the Virgin Mary, it witnesses to the reality of the incarnation, not to the glory of Jesus' mother. But sadly, the Roman Catholic Church has sponsored the unhappy development of Mariology among theologians and Mariolatry, Mary worship, among the faithful. Mariology teaches that Mary was co-redeemer. I mean, what a falsehood that rests upon the non-biblical teaching that Mary, like Jesus, was born without sin. Nowhere does it say that in Scripture, but that is known as the Immaculate Conception. And they also teach that Mary entered resurrection glory straight after death. It's called the Assumption of Mary. Nowhere found in the Scripture. Whereas the real Mary, the real Mary of Scripture, she saw herself simply as a saved sinner. Listen to her. 
Luke 1, 47. She said, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Well, my friends, how we should, how we should thank, how we should praise God for sending the Lord Jesus into this world so that we might become sons of God. I mean, what joy, what gratitude should be stirred up in our hearts. We who are united to Jesus Christ by faith will spend all eternity thanking and praising God for the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I began tonight by, by saying that millions of churchgoers around the world continue to recite the Apostles' Creed. And when we recite it together at the very end of the service, will we actually believe what we profess? We need to remember that as we recite the Apostles' Creed, we're not merely checking off a list of correct doctrinal propositions, but rather... Whenever we say, I believe, we're more, more fully saying, I rely upon. I'm staking my eternal destiny upon for life and salvation. I, I'm depending upon God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ our Lord and the Holy Spirit. I'm looking to, I'm relying upon, I'm staking my destiny upon Jesus Christ. And when you recite the Apostles' Creed, and when you say those words, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who's conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, you're recognizing Jesus as your Savior. You're affirming that work of salvation that Christ has accomplished for you. And you're also recognizing Christ as your prophet, your priest, and your king. You're affirming that he reveals God's will to you. He represents God to you. He rules over you as your Lord. And you're also recognizing that the one who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary was God come to earth in the flesh. Truly God and truly man. The Apostles' Creed proclaims eternal truths for life today. But are you and I building our lives? Are we building our hope of eternity on these truths? We must. We must. Let's pray together. <coughs> Lord God, through what we've studied tonight, we've been reminded again of your amazing grace. Reminded of your love that has no beginning and knows no end, that knows no boundaries and has no limitations. A love that created the world and came to us in Jesus, our Saviour, our prophet, priest, and king, the eternal, divine Son of God, our Lord. We praise you that in Jesus the kingdom came near. And that still for us today, he remains the only way in which we enter your kingdom. We praise you for Jesus, who for our sakes left the majesty of heaven and entered the all that life means for us, that we might be free to become the people 
you always intended us to be. May what we've learned, what we've heard from your word tonight, not just leave us with more head knowledge, but also with hearts that have been moved to respond (laughs) with willing obedience to the will of our Lord and God. May your Holy Spirit so flood our hearts and our lives that we may glorify Christ as our Savior every day and give honor to him as our Lord. In the saving name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.